Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, where class struggle elections are the only elections that matter. Today we have Walida and Zoe. We are delighted to have Heidi Sloan with us today. Some of you might have heard her name. Heidi is a DSA member and a farmer who is running for Congress in Texas's 25th district. Um, for people who might not know where that is, it's roughly the Austin-Fort Worth area, the sort of area in between, um, to unseat the incumbent Republican Roger Williams, who is, and I couldn't believe this when I read it, a local car salesman. Heidi, welcome to Season of the Bitch. <laughs> welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> um, so, oh. Well, for our listeners, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history um, as a former teacher, someone who's worked on homeless issues? How did these affect your personal politics and what what brought you to socialism? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for about six years, I taught in a classroom, in a public school classroom for children with disabilities. It was a fully integrated classroom, kids three to about six years old. And it was really beautiful, um, really inspiring and a valuable time for me to understand both the impact of integration and community building amongst different sets of needs and different strengths. And also like an incredibly frustrating time as many people who have worked in public schools and especially in um, the departments in in public schools that deal with disability Uh, curriculum and resource acquisition. So I eventually left that work, um, left these kiddos that I loved so, so much, and I transitioned into farming. Um, And I currently farm at, in the middle of a permanent supportive housing community for folks who are leaving chronic homelessness. Um, Some of my friends there were homeless for a couple of years and some for 20 or 30 years at a time. Yeah. Um, And so for me, I have really, I'm that person who took all those sayings to heart about like being the change you want to see in the world Mm -hmm. and really tried to like dive in and be amongst and alongside of like the most vulnerable folks that I could find. But, you know, um, I also really bought into the philosophy that I could make a lasting impact on my own in what turned out to be um, bigger systemic issues. And so it took a lot of honestly just watching people that I love, like, slip through the cracks and slip through my fingers because that fight is so much bigger than myself. For me to realize my politics at all. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I would say that I my first like development into any real politics it was through a lens of organizing. Um, it was saying and hearing people say that one person alone can't tackle inequality that's not how this works that's not how it was built and that's not gonna be how it is unbuilt but that when we stand together and when we bring people into their own collective power um then we really can start to to make all of those changes that i was 
really wanting to um, to see in the world in those spaces. Hell yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I do need to tell you the one time I've been to your district, <laughs> um, I was telling Walita this earlier, was in 2014, the our true listeners know that Gil- Gilmore Girls is like my all-time favorite show. I'm obsessed with it. And they did the one and only Gilmore Girls reunion was in Austin, and I flew there for it. Um, so big fan. <laughs> Amazing. So I have only great memories of Austin. <laughs> A curated experience. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but anyway. Could you tell us a little more about your campaign? Obviously, you've done a lot with homelessness. Are there what are some of the other like main things that you're working towards with your campaign? For sure, um, yeah, thanks. Uh, definitely continuing to to work on issues of homelessness in in the district and and throughout Texas. Honestly, like electoral politics is not home base for me. <laughs> So we, in, in um, setting out on a congressional campaign, uh, first of all, had to learn like what that even looked like and spent a number of weeks doing that. And then once we had sort of a feel for how people operate electoral campaigns generally, we're left with this feeling of, okay, now we get to decide what of that we're going to take and what of that we're going to leave, um, what is going to like actually move um, the the campaign that we want to grow in the direction that we want to see it. Um, And it's fascinating. Electoral politics is fascinating. Um, There are so many spaces where we are told and are telling um, people, whole people that what matters is their vote. And if they just vote, then things will turn out how they want them to. Yep. And I just don't think that that's true. I think we have strong historical evidence that says even with a popular mandate, individual politicians don't get it done. Um, and so we are like out there uh, having these conversations and trying to cultivate language that says, actually, you are so much more than your vote. Actually, you are a person who lives in a home, hopefully, who deserves a home, definitely. Uh, you are a person who um, is part of the healthcare system because you have health. You are a person who has an impact and is impacted by the educational system. You are a person who um, works or does not work, or, um, you know, you are a person who participates in our environment. And all of those spaces matter as much as voting matters and who we are and how we show power in those spaces um, has to work collaboratively with how we show up to electoral politics in my vision of, of how we actually get things done in the world. Tell us a little bit about the 25th district itself. What does it look like demographically? It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so you said earlier that it runs uh, in the space between Austin and Fort Worth, which is like true. Um, but it also goes a little bit south of Austin. And so to drive from one end of my district to the other, it takes four and a half hours. Whoa. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and 
you know, I live in Austin and, and a significant amount of the population in the district is also in, in Austin and Travis County. But um, with this vast geographical dispersion, this in, incredible gerrymandering, it's also really, really diverse and, and in some interesting ways. So uh, in the urban areas, mostly Travis County, um, we tend to have like wealthier areas and also more diverse areas. Um, but then we have, you know, the folks who have been um, displaced from Austin and Travis County also in the district, which tend to, of course, be people of color and also um, people of color with families, in particular with kids. Um, and so we we have those folks kind of in the more suburban areas and we also have a whole lot of deep really rural spaces and those tend to be a lot more white and a lot uh, lower income more more uh, rates of poverty in those areas and some sort of like smaller uh still more white small cities that are struggling um with income inequality on a, on a really incredible scale scattered in between. So we really just touch on um, the dynamics of a region, mm-hmm. which yeah. is fascinating. And, and also like um, the dispersion of, of class and how that becomes a political lens, um, much more so than being able to say, you know, uh, a Democrat's life is in this way better than a Republican's life. Um, actually, it doesn't matter at all mm-hmm. uh, how you vote. Your material circumstances look pretty similar um, yeah. if you are working class in this region. Uh, tell us a little bit about Roger Williams, who who you are running to unseat. I assume he is a sort of par for the course Republican. And car salesman. And car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a caricature. I can't. I can't get over it. Um, yeah, he is. He is in fact a car salesman. Um, but he is. Uh, he inherited used car dealerships from his father. Mm-hmm. So it's not even that he's himself a used car salesman. It is that he inherited used car dealerships. And so like, I have no idea if this is a person who has worked in their lives ever. I'm not sure. Right. He is the like the 22nd richest person in Congress. Wow. Um, yeah. That's and, very rich. That's out of 430. No, how many members? Wow. I'm forgetting how many members are in Congress. I think he's, <laughs> he's worth like $47 million. Oh. I want um, and, and he votes with Trump 97% of the time. And I know that we, we all know that that is like terrible, mm-hmm. but like when I say to people, he votes with Trump 97% of the time, I make sure that I say also things like, you know, how there was a bill to make sure there were toothbrushes in detention centers that were holding children he voted no to give toothbrushes to children. And he voted no on the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, 
these are just like not human answers. Um, and so he is, he is a caricature and it's very funny and he's very amusing and, and really um, does not do much on his own. But the way he votes is just absolutely atrocious and I don't think representative of this region at all. Yeah. Um, it sounds like he, he's kind of just this like body to hold that place down for whatever the Republican agenda may be without maybe even giving it much thought himself. Who knows? Um, in your in your opinion, what are the most immediate pressing needs in your in the in the district you're running to represent that aren't currently being met? You talked a little bit about homelessness. Um, what else is what else is sort of happening in that area? Yeah, in District 25, like in so many places that include rural areas, we see um, we see materially this drastic decrease in the availability of public services. So Texas is is one of the states who left Medicaid money on the table. Um, And so we are having rural hospitals close at a rate that is just dumbfounding. Um, And and at the same time, our state legislature in cahoots with the Federal Department of Education um, are divesting from our public schools. And while I know that that is impactful for our more urban areas, I see it every day, where it really starts to strangle communities is in these rural spaces where there isn't another option, where people are having to just pack up their lives and move. And I I know that those material conditions, those like quality of life issues are so important. And at the same time, I think what's really disturbing in District 25 that we can observe is the the stories that are told um, to people who are living that experience that that there is this scapegoating, there is this blame, um, there is this fear that is generated. It says that it's the the fault of immigrants, it's the fault of um, people who are living in poverty, it's the fault of everyone except for those who are actually in power and making these choices. And so we exist in this like pretty well-known tension in, in rural Texas areas where the first thing we have to do is make sure we see the world clearly and are speaking in um, sub- substantive terms about why things are the way they are and then begin to address them um, together. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, the electoral process isn't really your forte, which we love to hear. I would say a lot of us or all of us here at Season of the Bitch are very skeptical of electoral politics. Um, You are, however, in a very uh, elite group of politicians that have been on Season of the Bitch, only including Mm -hmm. Leah Salazar and Mike Gravel. So a very special group. Um, (laughs) But in talking about the needs that aren't being met in your district... Um, how do you think the electoral process leaves that out and what are you doing to address those things? Um, I very much appreciate the company. It's <laughs> <laughs> really, really excellent. <laughs> I think that when we talk about electoral um, processes as they exist right now, it really is like um, 
trying to convince people to trust me that I am the right person for the job, that I have the the right morals, that I will go to Washington and fight for you. And I think that what we need a lot more than like a savior is actually to be organized into our own liberation. Um, I think that we need to focus on building um, through electoral politics structures that endure, infrastructure that endures for much more than just one cycle or one campaign. And so like literally just getting neighbors to talk to each other is a huge first step. And then bringing them to collective action over those conversations, over those needs that they can identify better than anyone else in the world can identify. And, and that happens, of course, in our neighborhoods and, and in our school, school districts, but it also happens in our workplaces. Um, and when uh, in electoral politics, we are generating that kind of connection, I think that we have the opportunity to maintain both the, the power of connection within the community and access to uh, the power that comes from um, holding elected office. And honestly, like I didn't make this up. I believe this because I've seen people um, use electoral practices in this way. We have a city council member in Austin who organizes us to action and is organizable to what we want to get done all of the time. And it is fantastic, yeah. There's a lot going on, as you touched on, around homelessness in Austin right now. Uh, you were part of a coalition that ended the criminalization of homelessness, which honestly kind of insane that homelessness is criminalized. Uh, but now the governor of Texas is threatening to crack down on Austin in response to increased visibility of homelessness, because how dare they be visible? So can you tell us about that fight and your involvement with that? Mm-hmm. Um, this is an ongoing fight, uh, like today ongoing, like next week ongoing. Um, and it's a fight that I absolutely will not back down from now or ever. Um, so the, the premise is that in Austin up until June, um, it was a ticketable offense to sit down, to lie down, to camp or to solicit, to, to solicit money, in other words, panhandling. And these are all behaviors associated with the experience of homelessness. Um, and we <laughs> organized the hell out of this issue and brought it to council. And after a whole lot of negotiation and a whole lot of coalition building, we um, pretty narrowly got these fully revoked. Um, we built into the new ordinance uh, language about public safety and um, access issues. So like having at least four feet on a sidewalk, being able to enter and exit buildings safely. And we removed all language that explicitly points to just people who are poor uh, because that's not an objective and enforceable standard for criminalization or it shouldn't be. Um, but people were big mad about this uh, before it even went into effect, before the new ordinances even went into effect. The media was creating this firestorm 
going out and saying that suddenly the um, incidence of homelessness in Austin had skyrocketed. And that's just not true, one. But for me, driving down the same streets and looking under the same overpasses that they were going around and filming and saying were so terrible, what I saw was for the first time in my experience in this city, people were instead of sleeping on the bare ground or on a piece of cardboard, they had a tent and maybe they had like a mattress or a blanket in their tent. And it, you know, it, it still almost brings me to tears just thinking about how that's an increase in quality of life. Yeah. And it made people so angry to see. So now we have the governor, <laughs> Governor Abbott, who is threatening to come in and, and do something about the problem. Um, and he makes really strong references to um, to things that, that Trump has said about putting people somewhere else, about um, removing them, about... Um, you know, the contamination that they are bringing to the area. And and this is a governor who has the ability to, number one, expand Medicaid. This is a governor who has the ability to allow cities to increase minimum wages. This is a governor who, um, who has so much that he could offer in terms of assistance and instead is threatening to come in and take city power away. And and I don't even, the language, the threat to people themselves is veiled, but I take it very, very seriously. It's really, you know, I've lived in Chicago my entire life. Um, and this summer, earlier this summer, was the first time in my memory that, I rem- that I've seen uh, tents, like tent areas popping up for people to live in under the highways. Like there's always been, I've always seen like homelessness and I've always seen maybe one tent here and there. But this year I was shocked. I saw one of an area that's beneath an underpass here in the city that was a sea of tents. And I had never, ever seen that before. And it just, it just hit me like, yeah, gentri- the gentrification happening in Chicago, of course, is by design. Of course, we all understand why it's happening. But to re- like, you know, even I'm struggling with it. everybody I know is struggling with rent in the city, even if they've been lifelong residents. And to see something like that, and to think that the, the first instinct of <laughs> of your local government is to just get rid of it without explaining what's going to happen to those people or what you're going to do is just, it's criminal. It's, it's, it, it always reminds me of like, yeah, no, we, this is, this is a, this is a bottom up problem that we have to solve. This isn't something that, that any, you know, local government, at least as they exist now is going to come in and solve without, without really just sweeping the problem away or pushing these people out or just sending them to be homeless elsewhere, out of sight, out of mind. Um, That's right. Yeah. I, I assume the people in Austin, that Austin area and that congressional district are also struggling with rent. Um, is gentrification also happening there? I really appreciate you making that connection 
between uh, displacement and gentrification and the issues of homelessness because they really are on the same spectrum. This is the threat that um, is after both people who are housed and, and those who are unhoused right now. And we knew that um, decriminalizing homelessness wasn't going to solve the problem. That was never the intention. If we want to solve for homelessness, we have to look at the affordable housing crisis and the lack of affordable medical treatment and the lack of jobs with living wages. In, in Austin, for example, two people earning um, our minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour, uh, could work full-time, both people full-time, and they would pay on average half of their income in rent every month, which puts them well below any sustainable metric for housing. Yeah. It's not possible here to, to have it both ways. And we are seeing the direct results of that impossible situation. Yeah, that sounds familiar. I mean, calculating poverty rates in this country has always been such an interesting political thing to me because whenever I read any definition of what a poverty rate is, it's like, well, you're sure, this is my income and this is what I have to pay to live. You're not taking into account medical emergencies, medical bills, student loans, credit card bills that I'm not racking up because I like to go shopping. I'm racking up because I don't make enough money and have to put things on my credit card to make ends meet. Like they don't, they don't just take all of these other costs of living into effect and then they just arbitrarily say, well, you make this much, this is how much it costs to live here. So this is the poverty line when it's in reality, it's probably much higher. Being poor is so expensive. Yes, it is. Everything takes longer and it costs more when you can't just pay for it easily and outright. Yeah. Um, so you talked a little bit earlier about connecting a campaign to movements. You're talking about, you know, even elected officials that you know that are very mobilizable and who mobilize. Um, I assume you mean to do the same thing um, if and or actually when you win this congressional seat away from the <laughs> used car salesman. Um, how do you plan on mobilizing for things around like, you know, in, in, a, in an ideal world, we get a Bernie Sanders president and we have a whole new generation of DSA members in Congress. And now we can nationalize or mobilize around things like national rent control, which is something he's also talked about, um, and the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. How do you um, how do you envision mobilizing around these things uh, in your congressional district? I think that that question has kind of two chapters to it. So while we have this opportunity to go around and knock on 100,000 doors or more in this district, we get to um, do the thing that we call deep canvassing, right? So we go and we have a long conversation with people. And my favorite question is, of course, like, what is it that keeps you up at night? What's going on? What are you worried about? Uh, and when people share the answer to that question, they are often sharing the same answer that their neighbors did. And so being able to make connections in that way, just like hear people out and, and recognize their struggle. Yeah. But then I know that there are tons of leaders already doing this work. I know that there are students who are leading the charge for a Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. I know that there are nurses who are so deeply invested in Medicare for all. And I do not need to stand in front of those groups. 
and, and get the recognition uh, for myself instead of building up what they're doing. Because honestly, like they have numbers and I want to contribute to those numbers because numbers in our uh, realm of accounting mean power. And I am counting on that power existing to actually get these things done. But then the sort of second chapter of this, so going into the election, we are organizing and we are connecting and we're building power. Once we are hopefully in office, um, we are thinking through really actively what it looks like um, to govern with organizing as a lens. So creating institutions that drive um, activists and organizers and community leaders to the table of policymaking. And I think we see some really great examples of this happening right now. I really love the story of HR 1384, Jayapal's uh, Medicare for All bill, and how it began to incorporate uh, community-based care as the predominant option for people with ongoing and chronic needs. Um, and that was an organizing story that was her making herself and her policy vulnerable to those who were most impacted by it. And that policy came out stronger because she listened and because she said, yes, you deserve to have a voice in how this is written. And it doesn't threaten me that you're asking for what you think you deserve in this situation. So I deeply, deeply admire that way of doing things. And I want to build structures, whether it's having offices that are um, both in district and accessible to organizers doing good work in districts or having office time where people can actually come and have a conversation with staffers um, and, and lots of other creative ways that people are beginning to bring to this thought process around being a, an elected official that is 100% accessible to the movement. That's amazing. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much the only way this will work. Um, so you've talked a lot about your focus on workers' rights and marginalized and vulnerable populations um, and how that's something very vital to your campaign. So we actually did a sex work um, 2020 episode a couple months ago with Michaela, who, if you're listening, we love you. Also, she's in Texas. So we kind of specifically talked about some of the struggles of sex workers in Texas um, is that something that you're working for and how are you taking sex work rights and de decriminalization into account with your campaign? So we are definitely considering and, and building on and working towards the, the full incorporation of um, declaring the rights of sex workers as the rights of, of any workers. You know, they are in the same category as far as providing um, a service and making an income and um, having to pay their rent and, and their bills and et cetera. Um, what is different about sex work is that it is pushed into the shadows. And, and I know for certain that that is not a healthy or safe place for work to happen, any kind of work, but particularly work that is um, in large part provided by already vulnerable people, um, tending to be women, tending to be people of color, tending to be younger people, uh, folks who are already relatively uh, without as much power in our, in our communities. And so I wanna have that conversation with 
with our rural voters. And I want to have that conversation with um, with the folks who would be uh, clutching their pearls yeah. from a place of, of both, look, if we are for workers, then we have to understand the full context of what work is. But also, y'all, criminalization does not make this safer. It makes it so much riskier for everyone involved. And, and that risk that we see cultivated with criminalization in sex work is not so much unlike the risk we see cultivated in the criminalization of, of things like substance use. When we know that bringing these issues into the light can actually help us to recognize what about them makes us makes us perceive unsafety and what about them is just like the perception of things in the dark. Um, and so I want right. to continue to, to commit myself to that and I want to continue to um, follow the voices of people with direct experience there. I think it's really important and I'm not going to proclaim that I have all of the answers of what that is like, um, but I believe uh, the, the workers um, in their fight. And I, I certainly do stand with them. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, actually, Walida and I both are part of like a national network of people trying to integrate more sex worker rights within DSA. And one of the things we're trying to do is have it be part of like the candidate questionnaires, mm -hmm. which gets a lot of pushback because people are like too cowardly about opening up this conversation. And so I'm just like, see how easy it is? You just ask. <laughs> you just bring it up and then it's brought up. <laughs> That's right. Like so many things. That's right. Yeah, no, I one, about of, one of the things that I, yeah, I hear the same things as Zoe. It's like, well, that, that won't work here. That won't work here. And I can't pretend that I understand the demographics of every single part of America or anything like that, but it's kind of like every other every other thing where it's like, well, look, I'm not asking you to be one way or the other on your personal opinion about something. I'm asking you to recognize a very serious like issue that's affecting people, understand how it's affecting them, and be on the side where we remedy how it's affecting them, whether or not, like regardless of how you personally might feel about it. And yeah, you just you just got to bring it up and talk to people. And I think I think you'd be surprised at how most people respond to things like this when you actually sit and talk to them like a human person um, mm -hmm. face to face, you know? A hundred percent. That's such a good reminder. And I'm actually like very grateful for you saying exactly that because I will be totally honest. I get to bring up a lot of intimidating things with folks that I know aren't going to start out on the same page with me. And exactly what you just said is what I have to tell myself every every day and what I have to say to my volunteers, like we can do this. Yeah. We have these conversations all the time. And if we are afraid to speak truth to our neighbors, what are we gonna do when we have to speak it to power? Right, yes, ah, well said, <laughs> I like that. Um, so you're currently running, are you currently in the primaries stage? Are you running against another Democrat right now? Yes, indeed. Uh, well, <laughs> When is when is the primary season over? Um, like when does when does that end so that the actual like general election begins? Yep. Um, so I am in a competitive Democratic primary, and that runs through March third, which is Super Tuesday, okay. and follows the presidential cycle, and then the the general is in November, along with the presidential election. Uh, what can you tell us about your Democratic opponent? 
You know, um, the other person running in the Democratic primary is a person who has run previously and um, seems to be like a very nice person, um, not someone who I ever met in organizing spaces. And so for me, um, what I see as the big difference and the reason why I run is my theory of change that um, you can be very nice and you can talk about the right policies but it does not matter how much you personally are committed to that. Um, it matters who you are bringing with you into that fight because we have seen many, many good-hearted people try and, and go and make a difference all on their own and not succeed in that. And so in these spaces, that's the conversation that I'm continuing to cultivate and continuing to have. But she is a very nice person and and um, we see each other all the time. And so it's, it's, I try to keep it as friendly as possible. Um, the policies tend to be pretty similar. though. So when we talk about things like criminalization, I move towards an abolitionist anchor and I just take that as far as it will go. And, and in this race, we are seeing a lot of movement to the left when we anchor to the left. So that's really exciting. Yeah. Good. That's that sounds nice and friendly. <laughs> you know, we try. We try. <laughs> um, so switching gears, one hundred percent. We like to try to end our interviews on a fun note when we can. Um, and as we established on our episode with Julia Salazar, it's very important to us that political candidates be transparent about their astrological charts. So, for the people of America, do you know your sun, moon, and rising? And if not, no worries, I can look it up for you. <laughs> I don't, but I really want to know, so let's do this. Okay, let's do it. I love this. We actually, on our Patreon, do, Laura and I do uh, a series where we read people's charts for them, and we did all of the presidential candidates for 2020, and it was very fun. So. I love it. <laughs> funny I'm way more nervous about this than any of your other <laughs> I'm like what are you gonna say <laughs> okay submit let's see okay you are a cancer son which I do happen to know is the same as Elizabeth Warren and uh Marianne Williamson or Williams <laughs> um let me find okay so son and cancer uh, you're protective of those you care about and of yourself, quite reticent about sharing your inner self to the rest of the world and often caught up in reminiscing. You have a reputation for moodiness, although this trait is most evident when the mood is in cancer. Yeah, I mean, cancers are water signs, which are like very upfront with um, emotions, like very in touch with your own emotions, which I don't I don't agree that it's like moodiness. I think that's kind of rude. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can be intrigued by objects with history attached to them. Oh, like uh, sentimental about like antiques and like old photos and stuff like that. Like Very Elizabeth cool. Warren's dolls that she had when she was a child. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so easy to pick up on. <laughs> and then where did it go? Oh, your moon is in Virgo. I feel like that's good for a politician. Virgos are very organized, um, very good at like spreadsheets and having all their all their uh, eggs lined up. That's not the saying. 
all their what's this name? <laughs> <laughs> all your all your in a row, you know. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Moon in Virgo feels most content when they've strained out all the details of everyday life, enjoy running errands, paying bills, balancing the books, take care of these things happily, although some won't let on. In fact, many uh, lunar Virgos are quite practiced at nagging and complaining. As long as they are appreciated, however, they will help you take care of your life too. That's perfect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then the site's like kind of where this is not what I usually use, but where does it say rising? Okay, you know what? We're going to skip that. We're going to skip your rising. I'm sorry, everyone. I can't figure it out. I will instead read Mars, which is a good one because Mars is like passion and aggression. So that's a good one for politicians. <laughs> Bring so it. your Mars is also in Cancer, <laughs> um, which could incline towards passive aggressiveness, um, oh. seem to resist change and shy away from direct confrontation, need to feel secure before you act. That feels good for a politician. Um, as a result, can appear uh, slow to make decisions at times. Uh, their motto is the best offense is defense. Is that your motto? <laughs> No way. <laughs> That's my motto. <laughs> um, kind of your weak to some, but are actually very strong. Yeah, that's what I think about water signs is like people think they're weak because they're upfront about their emotions, but that's actually like a good thing. You want people to be upfront about their emotions rather than hide them. Um, some Mars and Cancer are especially, um, especially tuned in. Uh, threatened by indifference. You don't like indifference. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's see. Prefer to handle situations peacefully and humanely, which I feel like is all you've been, that lines up with everything you've been saying. Prefer, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so that was my uh, quick astrology reading without having any <laughs> of my usual resources in front of me. <laughs> so Amazing. <laughs> I, I'm going to figure out your rising sign and let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I will absolutely look forward to it and take it into account in all of the things that, <laughs> all the things that I do. Yeah. Um, so now that we've handled the most important question, is there anything else that you'd like to tell people about you or your campaign before we wrap up? Um, well, we have a website. Please go to it. Um, we are on all the social medias, please follow us. Um, but like part of the reason of doing that is that I think that this is a dialogue. And so if you see something missing there or that could be stronger there, or that you would like to be part of there, then we want your participation. Um, this is not a one person show by any means. And so come on in, let's, let's do this together. We will, we will link all the relevant links, um, when we put the episode up. Uh, so listeners will be able to check out your site, donate if they can, um, all the good stuff. Sounds good. All right. Well, I think that does it for today. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your, I'm sure, very busy schedule um, to, to come talk to us today about your campaign. We're very excited for it. We wish you all the best. I hope you win. Um, and yeah, it's been a really good conversation.
thank you so much. And thanks for having such a smart and fun and correct podcast. (laughs) 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 I appreciate y'all. Thank you. Okay, well, that is our episode for today. That was a super fun interview. Um, I'm glad she was such a good sport about me doing an on-the-fly chart reading. Um, If you want your chart read, you can subscribe (laughs) to our Patreon um, and send us your chart. And we know we're behind. If you sent us your chart already, don't worry. They're coming. Several of my friends have been like, are you still doing that? And I'm like, yes, but we're busy. (laughs) And our editor is underpaid, so give us more money. Yep. (laughs) um you can also find us on twitter at season of the bee also on instagram also kind of on facebook but we're trending away from facebook but still like us if you're on facebook though everyone should actually just get off facebook um (laughs) and oh you can email us at uh, season of the bee at gmail um we we love when people just kind of send us like long emails about how much they love us uh you can rate and What's it called? Rate and review on uh, the the podcast apps on iTunes. Um, I love sometimes when I'm sad, I just like scroll through and read our reviews. And I'm just like, ah, people love me. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, very uplifting because we have five stars, which I didn't know. And this is a long outro now. I'm going to tell the story anyway. Uh (laughs) My workout buddy at the gym was like looking up our podcast and she was like, wow, you have five stars. Wow, you have, like, a big following. Like, you have all these, like, reviews. And I was like, oh, my God, we do? (laughs) (laughs) I I actually did not know that, which makes me feel bad. Now I'm going to go read them all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you should. It was definitely – it just feels very nice. So, anyway, leave us more reviews. We'll be reading them. Um, I think that's everything where you can find us. Yeah, anyway, uh, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye, Zoe. Love you. Season of the Bitch.